Welcome to the show today. As I promised last week, we're going to be talking about censorship. And I specifically refer to government censorship of conservative people. Now, I want to begin with what we might call simply a syllogism, and that is, if it is the case that a government censors free speech, that is, curtails free speech in a society, that is, assuming that, of course, we're not trying to overthrow the government as a communist movement would, but if a government censors free speech, that is, the free flow of ideas, then that government has the characteristics of a totalitarian government. The minor premise is it is the case that government actors, government proxies, the government itself is involved in censoring free speech in America. We are already living in a society run by a government that is totalitarian in nature. Now, people say, well, it doesn't feel like that all the way across the board. Well, that's because it's a big country. If it was a small country the size of Connecticut or Delaware, the, the state of Joe Biden, we would already be looking like North Korea. But since we're not that small of a country, it's a big country, and it takes a long time for things to ripple out, then, therefore, what's coming down the line, it will take a while. But still, we are living in, really, the first phases of a totalitarian government. So let's think about how that works. And what we want to talk about, then, is censorship. Now, this came to light specifically. Now, however, people who are on the conservative side of the spectrum recognize that this has occurred and has been occurring for years and years and years. There's been a, a mainstream media blackout on much good information. At the same time, mainstream media purveying misinformation itself. And by the way, next week, Lord willing, I'm going to follow up this show with another one talking about misinformation, false information, and whose job is it to censor it and correct it. So we'll talk about that some next week, not having time this. But it came out clearly to everybody, I think, during the pandemic period, the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's talk about that for just a moment. During that period, the state itself, that is the government itself, imposed lockdowns. YouTube banned videos that were critical of the CDC, that is the Centers for Disease Control. And the CDC was operating solely on WHO policies, World Health Organization policies, incidentally, which is controlled by communist China. So let's follow the, follow the dollar here. The CDC took its directions d- directly from and solely from the WHO policies, World Health Organization. But that is controlled primarily by Chinese communists. The YouTube CEO, Susan Wajkiki, I guess that's how you say her name, is W-A-J-C-I-C-K-I. She said anything that goes against the WHO or goes against the WHO recommendations would be a violation of our policies. All right, so immediately that should raise a red flag to people. They're taking their they're taking their cues and their directions from one single source, and that is the WHO. In the Senate, however, in the Senate of the United States of America, doctors were heard giving testimony regarding ivermectin, for example. And many different uh, committees in the Senate and the House 
heard different testimonies pertaining to these things, yet this was a complete blackout to the American people. So it's good enough for congressmen to hear, but it's not good enough for American people to hear. Isn't that interesting? Because the congressmen and the Senate, that is the government, are to be our workers. They are to be people who are working for us. They're the ones who heard it, but it was not good enough for us. It shows you right away that we have an upside-down idea and concept of what government is and should be, and that's because we've accepted this gigantic, gargantuan octopus of a government that has a million arms reaching into every facet of your life. So let's think about what might be right and might be wrong referring to COVID-19 policies and COVID-19 facts. All of this conflates empirical fact-finding with government policy-making. Now, one of the great books that has been published at this time just a couple of years ago is by Vivek Ramaswamy, and he writes in Woke, Inc., and he his, I've gotten a lot of cues from him on some of these materials, and he points out that this conflates empirical fact-finding with government policy-making. So, for example, it's one thing to assert that bandanas are as good as N95 masks. It's quite another thing, however, to treat anti-lockdown arguments as incorrect facts. Whether a lockdown of a business actually halts the spread of coronavirus, that's a policy judgment. It's not a fact. And as we have learned over a period of time, at this point, much information is coming out to show that all of that was false information. We were operating under premises that really were mistaken And that was false information. So when we treat policy judgments that the government makes as facts, then a republic is on life support. And it shuts down open debate. And that's exactly what happened during the COVID-19 problem. And that is we were shutting down. We were shutting down open discussion, shutting down debates. Furthermore, using the WHO as the single source of a fact is absolutely problematic. And I don't know why more people don't raise a cry and hue against this particular idea. It's an autocratic United Nations system. This is exactly what the UN has always wanted. Now, furthermore, it's not about science anyway. It's about financial self-interest. The tech giants, and I speak about Apple, Twitter, those kind of companies, Facebook, they wanted lockdowns because what happened? Well, people were buying groceries via Amazon. They were buying groceries online, and they were buying movies, Netflix, instead of going to the real movies, But the, or going to the movies in a theater. But the real story, the real story is this, that it's a monolithic political agenda. And I want you to think about some of these companies for just a moment. Here's a company named MailChimp. It's a bulk email marketing platform refused service to the Northern Virginia Tea Party. And they said, well, because they spread harmful disinformation. So if someone has a disagreement with the official policy or the official line of the government, then they're shutting it down and they have become government actors. We'll talk about that in a few moments. PayPal. Refused service to right-wing organizations. They said that they were involved in hate speech. And, of course, as we all know, hate is only in the ear of the beholder. Airbnb banned Ronald Gaudier 
He was a self-proclaimed member of Proud Boys. An anonymous group, however, on Twitter asked if hate groups were allowed to use the platform, and Airbnb very quickly canceled his reservation. So the message from all of these companies, and more also, is that if you transfer money, if you rent a home, if you submit an expense report, if you send an email, you better have the right political views, as determined by Silicon Valley itself. And that is exactly what we're learning right now. All right, let's turn attention to Google. I had to get a sip of my coffee there. Summer of 2020. Individual clicks on Joe Biden on Google searches were exceedingly high for Breitbart News. Breitbart News suddenly, mid-year, took a nosedive, however, in the number of clicks on Joe Biden. Why is that the case? Because Google kept a blacklist of right-wing news sources and they suppressed information. Now, this is interesting also that one man went before Congress who was a Democrat, he was a liberal Democrat. He testi- testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. His name is Dr. Robert Epstein. And he testified that Google could manipulate up to 15 million votes in the upcoming election. That would be in 2020 that put Joe Biden in office without leaving a trace. They could manipulate, now get that, 15 million votes without leaving a trace. He had 733, uh, 733 field agents. They preserved 500 experiences online. And he said these experiences are tilted heavily, heavily in favor of liberalism. Let's talk about censoring articles for a moment. And we're coming down to the, the bottom line in just a few moments. So bear with me. We're talking about how totalitarian our government has become. Censoring articles. The New York Post had an article on Hunter Biden, summer of 2020. It detailed his business dealings in Ukraine. It detailed the millions of dollars that flowed through his hands and apparently, and at that time it was simply apparently into Joe Biden's hands. We know now that that exactly was the case into Joe Biden's hands. They received that money from foreign governments through Ukrainian companies from China, received all these millions of dollars. Now, that was run in the New York Post. Twitter banned the article. They banned also any users that shared a link to the article. Twitter also froze the account, the entire account of the New York Post. They also suspended accounts of writers for New York Post. The personal accounts of different writers for New York Post were suspended by Twitter. Facebook followed suit. They limited the distribution of Hunter Biden's story. The two biggest social media platforms decided what information people might be exposed to. Now, what what I, we've talked we're talking about the election and the downfield blocking that big tech made in favor of Joe Biden. The election, I believe, was rigged, and I believe this is exact. This is proof that it was. We have big tech that is have a corner on the market, and they're doing downfield blocking for Joe Biden, suppressing information. And all we hear about from liberals, I heard on, I heard, for example, 
on on the five the other day and you know what the five is a, a great show they have a lot of great people on there but the liberal girl i can't remember her name and she said well she thought that government had a had a right to and had a it should be in the business of uh, censoring false information because misinformation is so is so damaging you know what if you let government this is an example of it because we're going to see that they're government actors, Facebook and Twitter, government actors. Before this show is over, we'll show you and prove that to you. If you're going to let government do it, they consider this misinformation. In other words, it's simply information they didn't like, information that was against who they were pulling for. That's exactly what was going on. And you can't cl- uh, classify that as misinformation. For years, the mainstream media has been tilted, and that's exactly what's taking place. Now, after the election, the FBI quietly came out, and they said, well, yeah, 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 we were investigating Hunter Biden. You see what happened? Twitter and Facebook actually, actually interfered in the election, and that was at, as we learn now, at the FBI, that's the arm of the Justice Department, the FBI's, at their request, at their demand, they went to these places, Facebook and Twitter, and they demanded that these stories be squashed. That is interfering in an election. We didn't have a free election because free information was not flowing to the people. That's exactly what was taking place. Silicon Valley has had a chokehold over the marketplace of ideas. Our democratic system has been rigged, and it's rendered irrelevant when we cannot have a free flow of information. Now, we'll pick that up in just a few moments on the other side. I started the entire segment talking about if it is the case that the government itself is, is suppressing information, that is suppressing free speech in a country, the free flow of information, then we are living in a totalitarian system, or at least the first elements of it, the first phases of it. And it is the case that that is exactly what the government is doing. We are living in a society right now, and I, I, cannot, I cannot urge you how dangerous this is and what a, what a terrible position we are in today because the government has been interfering in the election process and in in also in the free flow of information in our country. That is the case, and we'll see how that is right now. So... <clears throat> I talked about the New York Post article, Hunter Biden story spiked because the FBI, FBI leaned on uh, Twitter. They leaned on Facebook. Jack Dorsey came on the radio, remember Joe Rogan's story, and he tells, they say, this is what they said. So suppress it. So they did. They suppressed it. So people didn't have the proper information. Now, for one thing, I want to say this. I, I, I do feel sorry for people who now have buyer's remorse. They say, well, I, I'm sorry I voted for Joe Biden. I'm sorry I did that. Well, you know what? I I feel a little bit sorry for you myself, but I say a little bit because for a for a long time, for at least at least twenty years, conservatives have been saying, and longer than that really, that the mainstream media and the government itself is tilted towards socialism and they are suppressing proper information. It goes all the way back. I hear people saying, Walter Cronkite, I wish we had Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite, let me tell you, he himself participated in misinformation, purposeful misinformation, lying about the Vietnam War right there on national television. 
He talked about how we got waxed in the Tet Offensive, which was a bald-faced lie. Okay, well, I get, I'm get beside myself on that one, but be that as it may, it's been going on a long time. Now, let's talk about Donald Trump for a moment. Here we have a sitting president of the United States that was suppressed, that it was his Twitter account, his Facebook account, all those things, big tech, censored him, and they silenced him. They banned him. Wow, that's amazing. You have a sitting president. They say, well, J6, January 6th, January 6th. You know what? They haven't got anything on Trump, nothing at all on Trump on that. They've been trying for how long now? And all you could hear are the Democrats saying J6, J6, and some of the Republicans too. But you know what? They haven't got anything on that, nothing at all. But they banned a sitting president took him right off of it. And I heard, I saw people on Facebook defending that. Well, they don't like Trump. You better be afraid when they are banning a sitting president. Well, let's talk about how this is really, and I've talked about Twitter and Facebook and Google. Now we're going to look at how this is really the government. They have assumed the role of the government because the real culprit here is Congress itself. Now, people don't realize this, but the government itself is the culprit. The federal laws that they created, I hear this carefully, federal laws that were created to help and abet, aid and abet Silicon Valley, giving them corporate privileges. The rise of big tech was not the result of capitalism. It was crony capitalism. Let me explain. The Communications Decency Act of 1996 has Section 230 in it. It offers a broad shield of immunity, legal immunity, specifically to Silicon Valley Titans for all content published on their platforms. So notice it's the shield liability. Let me stop right there. What's going on here? So let's look at Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. It tells us if someone publishes disparagingly remarks about you on Twitter, you can sue the person, but you cannot sue Twitter. Section 230C2 immunizes big tech platforms from liability. It says that, quote, any action taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, big tech has the power to censor the content. So what's happened here? Congress has passed the authority to censor the content to big tech, shielding them at the same time from liability if someone publishes a disparaging remark against me, for example, if someone says something about Bill Lockwood on Twitter, I cannot sue Twitter because of that. So that sh- it shields them from that particular liability. And it's called the Good Samaritan Statute. The intent of the law is to prevent children from accessing porn on the websites, we're told. But Jack Dorsey claimed in a Senate testimony hearing that if Section 230 were revoked, big tech could not operate because they would be fielding too many lawsuits and only giant companies could exist because smaller companies couldn't shoulder the burden. And now he's probably right about that. 
So there are two points here to make. Watch this carefully. Number one, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. Big tech, therefore, since they are shielded, given government statute to shield them, becomes a state actor. That is, becomes a proxy for the United States government. That's official. That is in law. Number two, under threats from liberal Congress, the Supreme Court doctrine is that companies become state actors. That is, if a company is threatened by the Senate, then that company becomes a state actor. Let's look at each of those for just a moment. Number one, Section 230, under the existing legal uh, doctrines upheld by courts, any company receiving special treatment under Section 230 becomes a state actor. That is a proxy for the government. They're acting in behalf of the government. Now, conventional wisdom says, we are told, well, these are private companies. They're private companies. They can do as they wish. No, they're not private companies. They're state actors. They have state-constructed protective actions surrounding them. A shield has been built around big tech, Silicon Valley, by the government itself, and they become, therefore, an arm of the government, so-called. They act for the government. You can look it up. They act on behalf of the government, a state actor. The Supreme Court has long held that any company that benefits from legal provisions such as 230 become state actors. It turns private companies into state entities. For example, Norwood case in 1973, the government may not induce a private person to do what is forbidden by the Constitution. That is curtailing free speech. And so when the government induces a person, threatens a person, they become a proxy for the government. The Railway Employees Department, 1956, a closed shop agreement was made between private unions and the employer, forced all employees to join the union because Congress had passed a law immunizing such agreement from liability under the law. So they became a state actor, and that's how the Supreme Court and state courts have ruled consistently on these matters. How about Skinner versus Railway Labor Executives in 1989? The court yet again found state action in private party conduct. That is, you might think it's a private party only, private company. No, they're acting for the government regarding drug tests for company employees. Now, why is that the case? Because federal regulations immunized railroads from liability if they conducted those tests. So since they immunized the the railways, the railroad company, from liability for taking those tests or conducting those tests, the railway became a state actor, and so the Supreme Court has ruled. So I've just mentioned several cases, Norwood Railway Employees Department and Skinner versus Railway Labor Executives. Now let's think also about this one. How about threats from Congress? This, this to me, is exceedingly interesting. Do you know who has threatened to remove Section 230 protective custody by the Congress away from big tech? Do you think Republicans have? Who, who do you think has removed it? Or I should say threatened to remove it. That's right, Democrats. Democrats have threatened repeatedly the removal of 230 protection of big tech companies if they did not censor speech that they found disfavorable. 2019, 
a Louisiana congressman, Cedric Richmond, warned Big Tech that they had better censor what he and his colleagues saw as harmful conduct or they would face regulation. In other words, we're going to remove that protective custody. New York Congressman Jerry Nadler said exactly the same thing. He held over their head Section 230. We'll take it away if you don't, if you don't curtail some of that speech. So now some conservative congressmen are saying we need to remove Section 230 anyway. Maybe the case. I don't think that's really the route that we need to take. But why, why would they want to do that? Well, the courts have long held that when a company has protective action that is created by Congress, it becomes a state action. Here's an example. Bantam Books in 1963. A bookseller stopped selling books that the state officials found objectionable. They sent him a threatening letter, and so the bookseller complied. He became a state actor. Carlin Communications, 1987. The Ninth Circuit Court found state action when an official induced the phone company to stop carrying offensive content with threat of prosecution. So to sum it all up, let's just illustrate it for a moment. Suppose a Republican-controlled Congress enacted a statute giving legal immunity to any private party that obstructs access to abortion clinics. Now, what would happen? Now, number one, the left would come unglued. They would lose their minds. You know, they, are, they do that all the time anyway. You know, every time Trump tweeted, they would, they would just lose it, and you would see them on the news for cycle for about three days until he tweeted again. Republic, let's suppose that a Republican-controlled Congress enacted a statute giving legal immunity to any private party that obstructs access to abortion clinics. Suppose further that Republican politicians explicitly threaten private companies with punitive laws if they fail to act against abortion clinics. If those companies did as Congress demanded, then they got a pat on the back from lawmakers like Blumenthal himself gave the social media companies progressives would see immediately the constitutional problem. Let's look at another illustration. Let's say Congress wants to look through the private emails of every corporate executive in the company. Can they do that? No, there's no constitutional mechanism whereby they might be able lawfully, and I'm going to put that in there to do that, but they could pass an email decency act that immunizes any hacker from all legal liability for breaking into corporate email servers and transferring those email logs into public databases. So let's say that happens. We can't do that. As, as Congress, we can't break into someone's email. But you know what? A private hacker over here, my friend Eric across the table, he's a hacker, will say, and we're going to create a law saying he is shielded from any kind of liability if he hacks it into those servers and he publishes your emails. What happens? I have just transferred my authority to him and he becomes a state actor. That's exactly what's taking place. That's exactly how this is happening. The big tech companies are not simply private entities. You might have thought so, but they are state actors. They are actually arms of the United States government. So let me summarize the first two segments this way. If it is the case that a government censors free speech, that is not trying to overthrow the government, not trying to kill people, just free speech as a free flow of ideas, then that government has taken on the characteristics of a totalitarian government. Number two, minor premise, 
Our government has done so via the tech companies who have become arms of the government through their protective custody that was created by the Congress. Therefore, we are living in a system that is totalitarian in nature. That's what's happening in our country, and we better awaken to this fact. We'll be back in a moment. I wrote an article the other day. You can find it on News Talk 1290, the website. You can find the articles that I write there. You can also find uh, this material. Uh, we have a Spotify uh, site, and it is uh, called Patriotic Pulpit. So you can go to Patriotic Pulpit on Spotify. You can hear the show, listen to the show there. You can also go to the website, which is AmericanLibertyWithBillLockwood.com, and you can see the articles on the News Talk 1290 website. So you go to those and uh, the News Talk 1290 website has a lot of good information. It's just a has a free flow of information on it, and I think you'll appreciate it. But one of the articles I wrote uh, very recently is this one called The Woke Church of Diversity and the Golden Plates of Joseph Smith. I thought this was interesting because of what's taking place on the liberal side of the spectrum regarding different authors and, and uh, how the, the left has— really become a church of diversity. It's a woke church of diversity. So once American culture has rejected any objective standard of morality, we're then in the ethical throes of, on many different levels. And to those who despise biblical ethics, the new woke religion presents them with a dizzying maze. It's just confusion upon disorientation, ever-changing standards, and no one can be consistent with these things. And this is an example of it, what I'm about to give you. There's a recent case with J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling is the famous British author who wrote the Harry Potter novels. Now, she's a radical feminist who became a woke icon. Now, get this, across the globe, especially when she revealed that Dumbledore, that's a character in her Harry Potter, Harry Potter books, was a homosexual. So everybody on the woke side of the aisle, they clap. That conformed to woke the standards. They like that. Dumbledore's a homosexual. That's what J.K. Rowling said. Okay. At the same time, although she claims that she has always supported transgender persons, her views on biology is that a person's sex is a biological fact that cannot be changed. So in view of on that view on transgenderism, now she's demoted in the eyes of the wokeness crowd. The diversity movement doesn't accept diverse views, you see. According to Scottish Daily Press, rallying herself was canceled by a bunch of kids at the ultra-woke Scott School over her position on transgender rights. Students in Glasgow have removed her name from his schoolhouse. How sad. Let's back up a bit. Here's, here's how all of this got started. Rowling had earlier supported a woman by the name of Maya Forstater. When Maya had tweeted that one sex was an unchangeable biological fact. Now, that seems very simple. But that, of course, is not going to get you in with the Twitter crowd, the Facebook crowd. And Forstater lost her job for that opinion. And Rowling received a lot of ire from trans activists as well as from Harry Potter fans. Harry Potter fans is involved in the woke mob. There's a lot of them are the same people. And so Rowling received a lot of criticism from those people because 
she supported my horse dater who said, sex is a biological fact. It's unchangeable. So modernists believe one can change his or her sex by simply making a declaration. You see that he, in, you know, that I am a different sex. I'm a different gender. And anyone who disagrees now has a phobia. That's how they, that's how they operate. So if I get word to say on the radio, I'm actually a woman, then you have to admit that I'm a woman. And if you disagree with that, then you have a phobia. Now that's how they operate. So Rowling answered all of this in 2020. She said, for people who don't know, last December, I tweeted my support for Maya Forstater, a tax specialist who'd lost her job for what were deemed transphobic tweets. She took her case to an employment tribunal, asking the judge there to rule on whether a philosophical philosophical belief that sex is determined by biology is protected by law. That is now, she's not asking about the sex being protected by law, but whether the belief that it is a biological fact is protected by law. Judge Taylor ruled that it was not. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I don't know about Judge Taylor. He adjudicated against common sense here, and he says common sense, and what you see is not a defense at all. So author Shasha White now enters the picture. Shasha White is a self-described, another self-described, radical leftist and feminist And she expressed solidarity with J.K. Rowling for her views on biological sex. So White tweeted this statement. She says, I heart J.K. Rowling. That is, I love J.K. Rowling. Well, that did seem pretty harmless. But the Tobias Literary Agency that had employed White didn't heart White, and they don't heart Rowling, and they fired Sasha White for her loving tweet. (laughs) Vivek Ramaswamy in his book, it's just so funny. You have to kind of, uh, okay, think about how this, how this transpired. He's, he gives us a recap. All right. Maya Forstater lost her job because she tweeted that transgender women aren't really women. J.K. Rowling lost her fans for tweeting in support of Forstater. Sasha White lost her job for tweeting in support of Rowling. The lesson here, ladies and gentlemen, is you can see the leftists in this country have not only confused an entire generation regarding sexual morality, they've destroyed their own generation they can't even think straight it absolutely defies imagination this internecine squabbling for ideological control makes perfect sense under the view that wokeness is a religion so writes ramaswamy and i believe he's right on that it's absolutely a religion the only thing is you can't keep up with the tenets of this new religion woke corporations are firing people for violating unspoken woke articles of faith but now here There's more to the saga, and that is the golden plates of Mormonism. J.K. Rowling gives us another angle. She comes in with Mormonism, and she shows, by the way, that she is actually well-schooled in the history of Mormonism. An example of her so-called anti-trans views, she wrote, it's like when Joseph Smith found golden plates and nobody else was allowed to look at them. Now, that plainly suggested that the golden plates did not really exist just as transgenderism does not really exist. So now, not only are the transgenders upset with Rowling, but now the Mormons are upset with her as well. It's kind of simultaneously aggravated, as one article said. Kind of odd bedfellows. And sometimes odd odd bedfellows is an interesting thing because back in the Prohibition days, for example, uh, you could have preachers such as myself would be against uh, the legalization of alcohol, 
and so also the bootleggers. So the bootleggers would be against it. The preachers would be against it. So that would be those would be odd bedfellows, wouldn't they? Preachers and bootleggers together saying, "Hey, keep it illegal." So, but I digress. All right. So now I'm not in the habit of quoting Pink News, a homosexual paper, but it summarizes accurately the history of Joseph Smith's fanciful tale of golden plates, and I want you to hear it. In 1823, when Smith was 18 years old, he claimed he was visited by the angel Moroni, who told him the location of, of a set of golden plates. The angel told him that the plates were buried in a hill near Smith's house in what was now, or what is now, New York State. And after taking four hours to dig them up, he was asked to translate them from an ancient language he called Reformed Egyptian. However, he also said that the angel had said he was forbidden to show the plates to anyone else and he dictated his translation to a scribe without looking at the plates, instead getting the words from the stone inside a hat. He then returned the plates to the angel Moroni so no one would be able to ever see them again. Okay. By the way, that, that is accurate. That's exactly what Joe Smith did. I've read a lot of history of the Mormonism, and he had a, he had a hat, put a peep stone outside the hat and said, here's the letter, and to his friends David Whitmer and so forth, they would write the letters down. All right, that's basically how it happened. So now there's Mormon backlash to the illustration that Rowling gave. So she said, okay, I'll look it up. She said, well, there are 11 people claim to have seen the golden place, but some of them were related to Smith. So there's debate as to whether also this was a metaphysical experience or that they genuinely saw the plates. To those familiar with Smith's history, however, there's reason to doubt that anyone saw the plates at all. Finally, in 1830, Smith published the translation called the Book of Mormon. That's the history of the Book of Mormon. But it all illustrates that regardless of what position one takes, there are those who are going to be offended. As Rowling puts it, it isn't hate to speak the truth. Regarding transgenderism, Mormonism, or anything, it isn't hate to speak the truth. Now, we're going to come back to that in the next show. It is not hate to speak the truth because there's a lot of misinformation going on about hate speech, hate crimes, so forth. All right. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Same with the same subject of woke, wokeism and the church of diversity. Last week, Glenn Hagar, the Texas comptroller, divulged a list of financial companies that are boycotting in the name of wokeness or stakeholder capitalism, the state of Texas. They're boycotting Texas. The initial list had 10 financial companies included on it, such heavyweights as the investment bank, uh, investment firm BlackRock Inc., the Global Bank, BNP, Paribas SA, Global USB, uh, UBS Group, AG Bank, so forth. According to Hagar, and we're going to compress this, we have about five minutes less left in the show. According to Hagar, the environmental, social, and corporate governance, that's the ESG movement, we talked about it in a show previous. The ESG movement has produced an opaque and perverse system in which some financial companies long, no longer make decisions in the best interest of their shareholders or their clients, but instead they use their financial clout to push a social and political agenda shrouded in secrecy. That is exactly right. What is this ESG movement? Well, the ESG movement is that companies used to be interested in what we might call the stockholders, but now within the past five to ten years, they're interested in stakeholders. What is stakeholder capitalism? Well, it's not, really not capitalism at all. But it is simply the trendy idea that companies should serve not just their shareholders, but also the other interests of society at large. That's the idea. For example, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest investment firm, issued an open letter to CEOs describing 
a sustainability accounting board that would tackle issues ranging from labor practices, workforce diversity, to climate change. In other words, they're only going to do business with companies that measure up on whether they're supporting Joe Biden's climate change agenda, workforce diversity, whether they want that kind of agenda that the government, the politically correct nonsense they're putting out of Washington, D.C., from our totalitarian-minded government, whether we are falling in line so BlackRock is not going to do business with them. Now, we see a lot of companies falling in line with this Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, um, other ones. We don't have time to talk about them today, but a couple of problems with this that I want you to think about as we conclude. Number one, the primary concern is the fact that corporations advance a social cause and not a business judgment. That's a moral judgment. These are moral decisions that companies are making, but these decisions actually are characterized and can be characterized more as a religious orientation more than a business one. You know, save the planet, save the rainforest, social justice. Those are all liberal causes too, by the way. Furthermore, there is no freedom in here, no freedom whatsoever. Al Gore says it's no longer optional for corporate executives to practice ESG principles, but that they have an affirmative legal obligation to embrace them. I think it's, that is so choice from Al Gore. Preacher Gore in Earth in the Balance in 1992 felt at liberty that he could go and take the book of Genesis and rewrite it. That's what he did. We've talked about that at length on the past program. Rewrote the entire Genesis account that we might serve the green agenda, that he might serve the green agenda. But that's what's taking place. And here's something else, another problem with wokeonomics. And this is as Comptroller Glenn Hagar put it. And I appreciate Hagar for his statement here. He says, these financial institutions are not transparent to the shareholders, but they use their financial clout to push a social political agenda shrouded in secrecy. And so his list is an effort to shine a light on entities that are engaging in these practices and create some clarity for Texans whose tax dollars may be working directly to undermine our state's economic health, as he puts it. However, the overarching problem here that we see in the corporate world, the prevailing view of these CEOs is that American free enterprise is the problem. The capitalist system, they say, is the problem. They believe that it creates inequality, that systematically rewards white people over black people, rewards white people over brown-skinned people. That's what they believe. Well, let me just stop for a moment, and I want you to think about this as we conclude. Free enterprise means freedom. That's exactly what it is, I, that I'm free to have my business, how I want to do my business, and I do business with whom I want to do business. That's free enterprise. That's freedom. They say that free enterprise is the problem. They're, say, they're saying, therefore, that freedom is the problem. Why is freedom the problem? Well, that creates inequity. That is unequalness. You know what? That's exactly what it will do. That's exactly what it will do. Let me tell you this. If we were to redistribute everybody's monies, everybody's worth today, everybody receives exactly the same amount. Do you know tomorrow there would be an unequal distribution? Why? Because foolish people like myself would go and spend all that I have. Smart people like you would go and invest it. You would only spend a dollar or so. 
or just a very small and minuscule portion just to eat, and then you would put the rest back. But I would be spending mine. So next week, tomorrow, and the next week, and the next week, and the next month, you're going to have a lot more than I have. You distribute equally today. There's going to be unequal distribution later because there are differences in people, and this is what socialism just ignores. They absolutely smooth it over and ignore the problem or ignore the truth, I should say. And the truth is that there are differences in people, different talents and different abilities. That's the truth. And so you distribute equally today, but it will be unequal tomorrow because everyone is not the same. <laughs> 